0: We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, I'm speaking with Kathy Frostard. She is the former CMO, Chief Marketing Officer of both Promises Behavioral Health and Foundations Recovery Network. She has uh, several decades of experience in the healthcare space before that. And so I'm very excited to have her back on the show. This is her second time coming on. She's always insightful and just a joy to speak with. So before we talk with her, I'd like to hear from our sponsors, the Global Exchange. The Global Exchange Conference 2022 is a four-day event of continuing educational presentations, workshops, and experiences from November 1st through the 4th. Located at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida, this event for the first time ever, brings together professionals and organizations from the mental health, addiction, and wellness fields. With over 100 continuing education hours presented by over 60 professionals, this promises to be a tremendous learning and networking experience. GXC 2022's featured speakers include Deepak Chopra, Whoopi Goldberg, Gabor Mate, and Rob Lowe. For more information, go to globalexchangeconference.com. To preface this conversation, there's something that we've seen consistently over the past decade, a little more within the addiction treatment SUD space in particular, are operators who are trying to grow a national brand or roll up the industry, um, as it's often called. And so there is this thought or this thesis that someone can come in with a lot of capital, and just do things well and they'll be able to grow and expand and continue to grow and then eventually become one of the dominant players within the space nationally. And to date, we really haven't seen this. Uh, Many operators have tried, many have struggled, and when we look at the larger operators of the past or the larger operators of today, particularly within the commercial residential space. Um, which is really what we're focused on at the moment in this particular conversation. No one has been able to successfully do it. And so part of the conversation with Kathy is just her insights as she's worked with some of these large providers and also been part of the turnarounds when new ownership or new sponsors come in and saying, how can we actually achieve this goal of a national brand? What are the steps we can take and what are some lessons learned through the challenges of working within the turnaround environment um, at a couple of the larger providers and just based on her overall healthcare experience. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's an important one to be having because as we can see, so many providers are trying to do it and so many providers have not yet been able to get there. So what is it that they're missing? What can we do to get that ball moving forward and actually achieve some of this larger success that a lot of um, a lot of providers and their investment partners backing them um, are trying to accomplish? And what just makes it so difficult to do? And are, are there other things that can be done to make it uh, more successful than it has been to date? So with that, let's jump in. Welcome back to the show, Kathy. Really, really excited and glad to have you back on. For anyone that doesn't know you, just want to reintroduce yourself and tell us about uh, your experience in healthcare and SUD. Yeah,
1: so my name is Kathy Frossard and I was formerly in a role in my Last role of uh, chief marketing officer at promises behavioral health. But I have been in healthcare since I was 16, started as a nurse's aide and ended up in that chief marketing role and have done a million things in between. And I have just recently retired. So
0: Well, congratulations on the retirement.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's kind <laughs> of crazy.
0: I bet you it's different, right? I always I can't imagine like slowing down, but I'm sure I'll want to at some point.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Definitely. So you've been actually through two acquisitions, right? Promises was the second one that you joined on as as they got acquired or after the acquisition. When they were both really turnarounds in some respects, uh there was a lot of changes that had to be done. So looking back, you know, what lessons have you learned through your experiences there?
1: Well, as I Try to tell anyone who will listen to me is that the truth is, is you relearn things over and over at different times in your life, and it just changes the way you react to them. So, what I think I've learned from both companies um, was that even though it's, it's very difficult when everything changes in front of you, like revenue style and, and insurance payments and regulatory agencies, um, that I can assure you someone else has been through something like that in the healthcare field. And if I would say there's any flaws that we might have had is sometimes you just double down And just try to do it, what you've been doing, and pray it starts working better. Or just the opposite, you just kind of run blindly into the wind. But every time that happens, it seems like at the end, you turn around and you start learning more about the way the processes are actually designed to work. And it becomes easier to do. But it seems like every time we go into something, it's a dramatic change. We just run into it and we're just like dang it, why isn't this working? So I think it's what we learn that we forget to learn and ask
0: questions. Well, I wanna talk about that a little bit because that's something I actually think about fairly often. I just had a lunch with one of the larger um, providers here in the country. They've got a new facility that they're trying to get up and running. And like one of the things that we see is, is, you know, a new executive team comes in or maybe it's a new private equity partner or whatever it is. And they will, to your point, kind of run back and forth between extremes and do the same things we've already seen, right? So since we're there before sometimes and then as well post-acquisition, we're like, well, no, actually the previous ownership tried that and here's how it went. And they're like, well, no, this is a good idea. We should do it. And we're like, well, but you already did it. (laughs) I mean, I know it wasn't you, but your organization did it. And so that's interesting. And I don't know if you can comment on, on that aspect of maybe doing the same things over and over again, just with different people
1: yeah i think it's probably the most frustrating thing in leadership it may not always be seen in the field you know but it's that but we've already tried that let me let me try a different tactic with it um or just speaking about what the results have been and i think that's very frustrating i really think that if this if um new leadership would come in and start with the basic very first job being laying out some processes you know fluid processes but like processes, this is how we're gonna go about this kind of thing. So that you could make it scalable and buildable versus just going in and, and you know trying to do the same thing over again, or just going crazy and trying to do a million things at one time. Uh, that would always be my advice to an equity firm is like challenge that executive team, come up with some basic processes and tell you how you're gonna go about this. And I, I guarantee they've all been through that process before coming up with how to do things.
0: Yeah, I think especially with the private equity firms and you know, if you're buying a company that's underperforming or out of bankruptcy, as was the case with Elements Promises, there's sometimes an overconfidence or an assumption that, oh, we, we can go in and fix this and it's going to improve really quickly. And I have never seen that happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've never been a part of it or seen that happen either. I've only seen it when they get back to basics and start, you know, really building it, but you can't just double down on that, right?
0: Yeah, right. I think that's exactly it, you know, and the, to give a more explicit example, like what we'll see is, and I just had this in the recent conversation at lunch, is like, well, we're going to go all in on business development, right? Yeah. And it it's never makes sense to go all in on something. It makes sense to focus on it as an executive team if you need to improve that particular department, but... To say, we're going to cut all of our you know paid media spending, go all in on business development. And then we'll see the flip side and say, like, oh, business development isn't working for us. We're going to go all in on paid media. Or paid media is not quite working. We're going to go all in on SEO. And it's those extremes that I have found to be incredibly unproductive. And then it it, it digs people a hole, right? Because census continues to go down. You haven't invested in systems, teams, and processes to be able to build sustainably. And so you just kind of get a bigger hole, more frantic, more panicky. And it... it doesn't work out well.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that idea of, of I've seen a lot of the pennywise pound foolish is a say or pound wise penny foolish for this. Uh you know, that idea that all we're focused in on is the big money, the big spend. So let's cut everything right away that's really big, but not looking at what the value of those things are. Or, you know, just going in and just really focusing on such tight minutia of how we can grow a certain area, then it just becomes really challenging because then we're over-focused on one area and the other, especially with PPC and business development. Those seem to be the two favorite things to in marketing is like a seesaw yeah. for what executives view.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's uh, to, to your point, there's a lack of building the foundation and investing in it because it's very hard to see. But usually, like when we're having those investment discussions with clients, and I'm sure you can speak to this, is it, we're having those discussions at a point where they've started to hit the panic stage, right? And so yeah. then at yeah. that point, you're kind of out of capital, you you're got a certain level of stress and pressure on you, and so suddenly investing for the long term is just a very difficult proposition to get across and approved.
1: Don't you think that actually starts to come from the fact that KPIs are set so um, unobtainable because that's what they want or what someone wants that amount of revenue or they want this amount of admissions? And the truth is is KPIs have to be done in in intervals and they have to build on themselves because when you're asking a team to go out and accomplish something that uh, they're so far away from, it always feels defeating instead of successful. And I think a wise leader lays out that um, success factor, that KPI at the right amount, small stretch goals, small stretch goals, and then the success is there. Um, But if you just have a super high number that is just impractical, people feel defeated and they're not as successful.
0: Yeah, you're speaking to one of my soapboxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I are like. It drives me up a wall. You, know, you can't just go and say, hey, here's our revenue target for next year. And so then work backwards from that and say, well, this is how we meet our revenue target. That has to come from somewhere. It has to come from historicals. It has to come, as you said, from not well both realistic and stretch goals. And so what did the team do last year and what's realistic to expect from them this month or this year? versus saying, yeah, you know, we need 30% growth, which almost no company gets 30% growth year over year. So you're setting mm-hmm. yourself up for mm-hmm. failure. You're setting the team up for failure. And in my book, as long as you're improving and moving forward, great. I guess it's different. You know, I'm not the person throwing down the money for the bankrupt company and needing to make that money back. Yeah. So I can understand maybe where that pressure is coming from. But if you went into it with a thesis saying, hey, we're going to make this money back in three years and just kind of randomly pulled that out of thin air... Um, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: So you mentioned the systems and processes, which I think is really important. You're right. Setting that foundation in the beginning, investing in the foundation in the beginning, when you don't have quite the level of pressure. In year one, year two, no one's really necessarily gonna be screaming um, down your neck saying, hey, let's fix this. They know it takes time. Whereas if you try and do that later. Uh, Other ideas or other suggestions that you have from, if you come into a new company, or if you're coming into an acquisition that maybe needs some work, what advice do you have for others trying to do that or manage that organization?
1: think um i think it kind of comes with your assessment so i do believe that the best leaders will come in and be quiet and assess before they go full forward and it doesn't have to be a long period of time but if they do that from up above without engaging in staff i don't think they're successful so getting down and engaging in staff with the staff um on the areas that are problems that you know you're going to change um i think that's that's really important in the very beginning, because if you miss it in the beginning, um, you'll start to get so busy with so many meetings and so many things to do that you won't take that time to get back down into that the weeds. Um, that's always my advice to new staff whenever they start, no matter what role they're in. I always say, you know, these first 30 days, you're kind of not really knowing what you're doing because you're trying to learn the processes and learn the people and all that kind of stuff. And it's the time that you can really get into investigating everything around you because pretty soon it just becomes busy.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. When you go into a new organization and you're talking a lot about the team and getting to know them, you know, what's your thoughts around kind of a little bit top down saying, Hey, here are our goals and here's what we want to accomplish and rah, rah, rah in the the team versus (laughs) listening to them and saying, okay, what do you guys see? What do you guys think needs to be worked on and then building up?
1: I just believe in building up. Um, I just think that even though it's fair to say these are the goals of our company, I I totally agree with that idea. But how are we going to accomplish those goals? You build up from there, because if someone just comes in, I, I think we all revert a little bit back to our childhood. We all, when someone tells us to do something that we don't want to do, we go no, <laughs>
0: right? Oh <laughs> yeah.
1: man, we learn how to do it just a little bit different and we push back in ways that make it more challenging right but if you don't get the investment or the engagement um you're going to lose I think I think there's something you asked me once about uh what do you think's the most successful model and I think every successful model starts with engagement it's Mm. that 360 feedback loop it's Corporate headquarters not being us against them. Uh, and and I think we've seen a lot of that increasing since COVID because nobody's traveling. Um, and now that we've seen we can operate without traveling, we just seems like less people travel. Well, except for you, Nick. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but people travel less and less. And so then it be- starts to become this idea that the facilities and and the headquarters are two different things. And we don't agree, so it's us and them. And I think that if you don't have that engagement and that interaction, then you're always down on this difficult journey.
0: So I think there's a, a couple maybe threads to tie together here. You're talking about the foundation and you're talking about this aspect of building up and building engagement, which I think is really important and something that we've seen be very valuable when teams sit down and take the time to do it. And then you made that comment on seesawing, where people go from one extreme to the next, which is probably the biggest problem that I've seen consistently in the space from a management team end of things. So related to that though, and what you're talking about is how do you build upon what you have? So rather than turning over your entire BD team for the second time this year, or your entire call center yeah. team the second time this year, which we've seen multiple times, um, yes, yeah. you know, it's like, well how do you say what's working here? And so the question for you then is in your experience, cause there are some, sometimes there's, a, there's a couple of rotten apples, right? Maybe, or there's a rotten component. Oh, yeah. How do you go in, identify the rotten component and what maybe needs to be carved off and replaced versus identifying what is maybe not working as well as you want it to, but has a foundation that you can build upon.
1: I think that, and this will be, this will sound horrible maybe, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think the people with the biggest amount of complaints right off the top before you even ask are the people that I'm the most concerned about from the start. They may be highly engaged, but they also might have that negative energy there. It seems like there's always one really verbal person who tells everybody how bad it is. And then the rest are kind of like, you're either on my side or you're against me. And um, so I would say that I think when, when leaders, get that really verbal person and you will hear them in every company you start at. Um, it's important to listen to them, but it's more important to listen to them as to why they feel the need to verbalize it because it may be problems or it may be that this person's kind of stirring problems. Uh, that's how I look for the the questionable seed. Now, the reason I say that sounds bad is because uh, you do want people to tell you things, right? But I, I think that trust to be able to tell you things that are going wrong takes a minute to earn it's not usually the person that's screaming the most about everything being wrong you know
0: yeah and i in my experience exactly what you're talking about it tends to be pretty obvious right there, there are people that come yeah. to you and say here's a problem and here's some potential solutions and here's what i think we can do about it versus a person that's in your office every day complaining about the problems the problems the problems
1: right Right, because they don't want to solve the problem. Uh, Amy Wilson, who's in business development at Promises, she always says, whenever someone has a problem, she always says, um, so what's your solution? Right. And it always stops everybody dead in their tracks. They're like, oh, wait, I was just coming to you with a problem so you can fix it. And it's uh, there's a difference. When somebody comes with a solution, things start to happen that are positive, right?
0: Right, right. And I think it's about building, you know, in the marketing space, we talk a lot about leading indicators, right? Are we seeing improvement right. over time that that may not be directly related to an admission yet in a particular channel or with a particular strategy, for mm-hmm. example. But the same thing applies to your call center, to your clinical team, to your business development team. You know, do you have good people that are working towards a goal? And if there's bad attitude, that that's, for me, what you got to carve out, 100%. Bad attitude, get them out of there. I agree but if you've got things that are working can we build upon it and make it better because it's often a lot easier to build people up from a certain starting point than starting from scratch and, and doing everything over and with healthcare you know I'm interested in your comment on this but it's so relational right so if i look at the both yeah. the business development team as well as the way that marketing messaging happens in the community if there are constant changes and shifts then people lose faith and lose trust in the organization, and then no matter who you pull in, they're fighting an uphill battle to rebuild that trust among referral partners or the community.
1: Absolutely, and those and there's always the ones that the real problems come out from facility to facility, talking to each other. You know, they always seem to bond around that. I I do think that it is really important if, if employees felt feel well cared for or well listened to. then I think clients tend to be better cared for and better listened to. But I also think that becomes your reputation. One of the things I noticed in both organizations that I worked with at the very beginning was uh, the experience that a patient had when they first arrived. The facilities that had really great um, interaction and welcoming with the team to the patient and, and that experience always had really good reputations. The ones that made people wait, you know, or or they were always saying how understaffed they were at the beginning or something like that,
0: then that tends
1: to be a really bad reputation that spreads. And um, when it comes to our industry, especially SUD, it's like that industry relies on having a good reputation. And your staff are the first ones to spread a bad reputation.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the way that we see it from the marketing side is, so let's take a Google ad call and it's roughly $150 in most places across the country for most geographies. That's going to remain flat no matter what you do if you're reaching into a market that isn't very familiar with you. But if you're in a a targeted geography that knows you and to exactly what you're talking about, you're starting to build up a positive relationship in that community and a positive reputation, then you're going to see your CPA drop or your CPL drop. And that's right. not happening because the marketing team's doing better. That's happening because you're building a reputation in the community so that when people see your messaging, they're more likely to act on it than they were before. And I think it's a critical distinction that a lot of providers have missed is it's not the backend marketing. It's actually the clinical community reputation component that ultimately drives a sustainable marketing spend.
1: Definitely. And you spoke to something that I'm just obsessed with. And that was probably because one of my last biggest hurdles um, before I retired was about Google reviews. Because I think I come from an area where I thought Google reviews are what they are, you know, Uh, uh, only the bad people, only people with complaints, put them online, you know, not not people who are doing well, and how can you make a change in that. And um, so I was challenged by my executive team to do that. And I think it was a great challenge. Um, to work on our Google reviews and it's not just how many you have. It's really just the meaningful thing. But what surprised me was I looked at other industries and what most bad Google reviews come from the minute someone walks in the front door, right? Mm -hmm. So why would that be any different in our industry? Right. And then in our industry, I noticed some of the best were the ones that came from where somebody even spoke directly about a staff member, someone who touched them in their journey. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so there is not a doubt in my mind that when someone Googles us and, you know, picks up one of our ads on the top of a page, that no matter who the company is, they are looking at the Google reviews. And and that's just another way of communicating in this new industry, that's this new world that's technology-based instead of just community-based. So you can't limit it to the community. You have to... You have to talk about the internet community and and how important that communication is and that reputation is.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think I've commented before on the show that, you know, on our data, we'll see a 10 to a 20% increase in cost per call on Google ads once their rating drops below four. And even yep. more interestingly, like we had a really large client where we were struggling to get a good CPL and they, they had a decent Google rating, but then we dug into it. And over the past 12 months... They had a really poor Google rating. So, even though their aggregate score looked decent, people were still going and looking at the past six reviews. And the past six reviews were all one stars, you know? And so, patients and consumers are pretty savvy, right? They understand it's like, well, look at this, but also dig into the reviews and, oh, the most recent ones are bad. Something's happened at this facility. It's changed. It's not as good as it used to be. And that directly impacts our ability to generate inquiry volume.
1: You know, when uh, a family member is looking at the Google reviews, they're looking for what will resonate with my loved one that I want to have go into treatment, that this is a good thing. And when a patient is looking at the Google reviews, they're looking at what excuse can I have not to go into treatment? Um, You know, (laughs) right?
0: That's right. Yeah, that's very true. So
1: we just. So we definitely, you know, we're looking for different kinds of Google reviews. We're asking, I think, good questions. And I think the Google review is just our, um, it is our public patient satisfaction survey, you know? Yeah. Yeah. got to kind of take it like that.
0: Yeah. I think it's really valuable The teams don't look at it enough because it does. It's a reflection of the experience that patients are having in the facility. And if you're getting a lot of bad experiences, you want to be taking that to heart and what can I do to improve that process, whether it's the first time that they're seeing you in the facility or if it's later on in the clinical program, but that's great data, right? It's great data to be looking at.
1: Right. And if the marketing team's not looking at that data, they're missing a big piece of their of their puzzle.
0: Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. You mentioned headquarters and sometimes conflicts that can happen between headquarters. Your thoughts on what should happen at headquarters versus what authority or responsibility should be given to the facilities themselves?
1: That's such a tough question. Um, <laughs> so I'll just give you my thoughts on it. Uh, so I think that at headquarters, it should be seen as the resource center for the facilities. So the decisions that need to be made at headquarters are the ones that are definitive that help really make it easier to run your operational um, facility, right? Uh, and I think that the, the decisions around, around like, in the initial patient experience or, or um, actual employee, uh, either raising employees up or, or having to coach someone, those should happen. And those decisions about those people should happen at the facility level, in my opinion.
0: What do you think specifically around marketing and business development? Do you see a split in responsibilities there?
1: Yeah. So I think that when it comes to business development, the engagement with them is number one. They have to be seen as uh, they have to think of headquarters has to think of them as their eyes and ears and they have to be seen by headquarters as their eyes and ears, because they do feel, because they're out in the field, that they're more knowledgeable about everything. So if we, again, don't, if they don't see us as a resource, like, you know, for example, I, one of the things we used to do was whenever someone out in the field had you know, a luncheon they were going to do, or they were going to go to a bunch of hospitals and all those hospitals they wanted to take talk to the emergency staff workers about it, then having the resources of being able to create a flyer for them or something off of the website or being able to to post on social media uh, for them before and afterwards, those things are just resources. And so if the social media of a company is just being posted, on a regular schedule without any ability to interact with business development, you lose it, you know, you lose that connection and then they start to feel like separate beings and Um, so I think that's kind of the way I look
0: at it anyway. Uh, I like that perspective because we talk a lot about providing resources, especially to the business development team, because you're supporting them, right? At least least from a marketing function in particular, what can we do to make their jobs easier to get their foot in the door? And for us or my perspective, it's not just providing collateral like a brochure or a business card or a flyer. But it's actually the, the marketing campaigns that you push out there, get the word out about the facility, get them known, and so it gets their foot in the door a lot easier. And it also does the job of follow-up to some extent, right? Rather than having the business mm-hmm. development rep having to call every single day, they call once a month or you know once every couple of weeks, and then they see ads the rest of the time. So you're staying top of mind, and it really helps the business development team do a better job of community relationship building.
1: Well, you know when you talk about that it made me think about um one other thing that I, one of my I think is good advice is that even though it is important for us to understand patient acquisition and we say how much it costs for patient acquisition and we we talk about this is how much business development lead costs how much uh internet lead costs how much a you know whatever um the truth is, is that all of those touch each other. And even though we do have to figure out definitive where does the lead come from or where did that patient come from in order for us to have a good CPA, it is really important to know that it's not a credit, it can't be a credit. Like this is a BD admit, 100%, you know, there's no other choice, right? And the chance, the fact that so many of us went away from paying any kind of commissions or anything like that, it allows you to say, you know what? The BD, they've been in that, they've been in that, um, hospital the patient was in that hospital and they called us through google and that is very very common that says the system's working really well
0: yep that's right uh we battle uh, on that with patient or not patients but um clients all the time and our philosophy is you should be looking at your cost per inquiries per channel wherever trackable but what you really want to look at is just overall metrics in terms of total inquiries, total admissions, um, and your costs across all of it mm-hmm. versus trying to be really granular. It's okay to run those numbers. It's valuable, right? To see yeah. in a general sense what you're getting, but you don't need to obsess over, well, what does this qualify are and for, um, and the BD rep said that they talked to that person before, even though it came off of a Google ad, like, Those discussions are really unproductive. And so you're right. You don't need to worry about assigning credit because that's where I think conflict enters it. And then people just waste a lot of time fighting about it. It's just more of a a back end tracking component to get a general sense of things. And then knowing how it overall affects your mix is what's really important. And we, we actually, if we really dive into your Google ads, I, I sometimes hate to mention this because then we get into these conflicts, but when you really dive into your Google ads, you'll have a lot of people that said they talked to a business development rep or they talked to an alumni person or it was from a referral source or whatever yeah. and so then people will come back to us and say well it's not actually the google ads that you guys are running that are generating these calls and these admissions it was x y and z and so are these really doing anything but the reality <laughs> is and, and we've tested it is you kill the google ads and those calls don't yeah. come in anymore yeah. so it was actually the the multiple touches that ended up driving the final mm-hmm. result And you also see that in the search terms right you know if someone was searching Uh for your facility and it happened to be an alumni well there's a high likelihood that they would have called anyway but what we actually see a lot of the time it wasn't alumni but they ended up searching for generic addiction treatment for whatever reason they didn't search for you and then they saw you and it reminded them or something and they called off the ad you know they called off the organic um, link but they hadn't been searching for you so All of these things come together. Like you said, it's not a final attribution, single-channel strategy. It's everything working together, and that's why I'm a really big advocate of just looking at general numbers in terms of overall success, and then your per-channel strategy is more guidance than anything.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, You had another question about the HQ that was interesting. Oh, that was the levers. So what about the facility's ability to generate or impact marketing. So if census is down, what actions do you think they should take versus what maybe HQ should be supporting on?
1: So we ran into that a lot everywhere I've been. And and I I think that that is a, a challenging thing to do. So you and I both know marketing is a profession with multiple levers that you have to continue to track and monitor. And what we often see with the facilities when they decide, when someone says, your census is low, you know, do something about it, uh, which is how it's usually said. (laughs) Um, They usually call business development and say, census is low, do something about it. And, uh, you know, and then they're calling, you know, like, how are my internet calls coming in and things? I think that it distracts from the patient care. And what I do believe that the facilities can do best Is owning the owning your Google reviews, owning your patient satisfaction, and then owning your expertise. So if you've got really great people that work there who can give a session or have a you know, be on a podcast or be um, in a webinar, those people need to be lifted up to corporate, and corporate vice versa needs to be asking them. Like, here's how we really take advantage. So you just got a really great practitioner who does amazing things with name the therapy we want to get that out to the internet right we want to get that out to the local communities and so i think that in that sense that the facilities should be like lifting up their strengths to us and keeping us current but to ask them to just focus on marketing because the census is low is a huge distraction from patient care
0: it's a really interesting way of looking at it. i like I like the idea of giving them ownership over the reviews. I think that's important, right? Because it makes sense. They, they're there. They know who's reviewing what or what names are being mentioned. And they obviously are the closest to impacting that patient experience that's going to drive that review process. Um, I also like them sending feedback. So this is something that we struggle with, Like, and HQs are the same. We almost never get information from the facility, on things that are happening, unless we reach out and say, Hey, do you have any information for this newsletter? Or is there anything that you want us to be posting next month? You know, but I think that is a gap. I, I think it's a big one because at, at some level we're making assumptions and we're guessing whether it's a marketing team at HQ or us as an agency vendor you know, we're, we're just making assumptions. And so it's really valuable to have information coming from the facilities and saying, Hey, this is what we're really good at. Or these are the patients that we're seeing that are most benefiting from treatment or that seem to be calling the most right now and admitting. So can we do a focus campaign around that? I think that would be really valuable. And it's definitely something that we, we don't see happen too often. We have a very, very small number of clients where facilities are giving us regular information or feedback.
1: Uh, since Promises was kind of my, uh, just I could do anything when I got there. That was one of the first things I did was assign two people at headquarters that were in marketing that would have regular calls with the facility leaders so that they knew what was going on. And and I, I, I felt like that eased the most flow. I mean, it certainly wasn't perfect, but we started learning more about what was happening in the communities and the other thing we did was i think reduce costs because a lot of facilities they get some kind of marketing requests from somebody in the community go to a golf game or go to whatever um if they're just they're just making those decisions and just spending that money but if you're in partnership with your marketing team they're not going to spend that money if the marketing team's like well let's talk about this like what does i, I had an experience where somebody bought a hole you know for an advertising at ad a golf at a golf tournament um for the symphony in the city and i was like so tell me how that gets us patients let's, <laughs> let's let's walk back into that right sure and uh but you they don't know they're just trying to get their name out there because they're being told to market right?
0: yeah. yeah so i
1: think i think that is i think that partnership is probably prone to the most successful interaction
0: well you know i actually had that experience at disney we had when we were running the schools marketing was always just kind of managed by corporate. And I see this happen in facilities and then it becomes a sit on your hands, kind of wait for them to do something for you approach where it's like, well, corporate's supposed to be managed this. We don't have admissions. And so I guess we gotta hurry up and wait, you know, which is not what you want happening. You want them taking some action and some ownership, right? But then when they did right. give us a marketing budget, they gave each facility a marketing budget. And this was when I was in China. So they're like, hey, Nick, here's $5,000 a month to market your facility. I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, this is yeah. not my my home culture. So you just right. kind of gave the money to the sales team and said, go spend it because you know we don't know. But yeah, so I, you're right. There's got to be some feedback. There's got to be some guidance. And there's got to be some training because otherwise... They'll spend the money and maybe they'll even spend too much oh, money. Oh, that's a
1: guarantee. <laughs> you give people money, they spend it. Yeah. That's right. But I don't think you want them buying a golf ball at a tournament for the symphony. I'm just saying. Right. You
0: know? Right, exactly. Well, the reality is again, marketing is a skill set and you have to have experience with yeah. it. And most people don't know what to do with it or where to spend it, you know. And so it is very valuable to have that that loop. So we've talked about a couple um, maybe some do's and don'ts and some things that we've seen. So what about the preemptive end? So anything related to what you're talking about, if uh, you're looking at an acquisition or private equity firms looking at an acquisition, anything in the due diligence process that you think has maybe gotten missed in the past that you'd recommend maybe taking a double or another look at?
1: Yeah, I I think, um, I've been amazed at due diligence related to marketing over the years and not just in uh, substance use disorder or behavioral health in all the areas of healthcare. It's often they get this little marketing packet and they're like, yeah, we've got 100 websites and we've got it's worth this much and this is worth this much. And there's never anyone that takes the time to question back um, what the real value is. And so what happened is whoever acquired it, you know, the team that acquired it, they have this expectation that, man, you're about to expand your marketing ability so huge. And the truth is is that, A, if a website's not built out, it doesn't matter what name you have. If If it's not well organized or well worked with and you don't have a marketing structure around it, it's just another website. It's just another URL. And I think that that and the idea of that, That's one of my biggest things is like when you do due diligence, spend an extra buck if you can or have someone do a deep dive into the website. Don't just assume that these are all worth just millions of dollars because it's got a special name, a special URL. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. No, that's a good one. We've, you know, I've commented on that before with American Addiction Centers in particular, right? I mean if you look at their public filings back when they were making public filings, um, you know, they have millions of hits to their website every single month, but they still didn't manage to get much patient volume from it. I mean, actually I was just looking at the 2017 data. <laughs> so I know this off the top of my head. Yeah, but there you go. They, they were getting about 995 admissions a month off of around 8 million website hits. And those exactly. admissions were not just SEO, those admissions were across the board, right? So it just goes to show right, 8, eight right. million hits a month and they were still getting like a 0.03% admission rate off of it. So traffic obviously does not translate to business opportunity, especially in the behavioral health space because it's very local. And so if you don't have a local presence, a lot of those a lot of that traffic, even a lot of those calls are not overly valuable because people are less likely to travel for treatment, especially nowadays.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the other thing is is that the days of um, people becoming patients or, or looking at us because of the name of the organization have kind of gone too. People don't look necessarily, they don't search for a big organization. They search for the local name of the facility, right? Yeah. And, um, but my experience is when, um, Uh, organizations being acquired, they get very excited about the name of that, you know, or that this this organization is so great, right? And, but if the, the facilities aren't great, that could be a very misleading value.
0: What are your thoughts on that whole idea, that whole thesis of having a national brand? I, I definitely don't have an answer to this, but I think about it all the time because we've seen the struggles, right? We've seen the struggles with whether it's foundations or Vertava Health or Promises or American Addiction Centers, right? This this idea that you can build a national brand in SUD and that that is going to then work in your favor in terms of um, you know patient acquisition over time do you think that's viable? Do you think it's doable? Why or why not?
1: I I don't have the definitive answer either. <laughs> I don't think it's very viable. I think that um, I think it's been proven time and time again is that uh, people look to the local environment, and so having a brand name that's associated with a a local um, facility, it, it doesn't add a stamp of you know, approval or any of that, you know, that I think it's more important that the focus and energy be facility led. I actually think all the marketing should be based on the facility information versus based on the corporate, you know, I just don't, I think it's something people want to have happen, but it's not, it's not always very realistic. And until you get to the big, like the hospitals, the big hospitals that we, we all go to, I mean, until you get to the big brands and it takes a long time to get there, I don't think there's much of an influence on that. I don't think that's what people are searching for, but, and I haven't seen people searching for those.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I my thesis is, because you're right, there is nobody that's accomplished it yet, and so there's no data oh. saying if it's successful or not. Um, I think there is potential for it, but much more so on the referral end of things. So if you can become yeah. a provider of renown and you're known for high quality care, I think there's a good potential for nationally making it easier to go into a new market, right? And say, okay, yeah. we are, yeah. we're Hazleton. Hazelton's a good example. We're Hazleton. Everyone knows Hazleton. And so mm-hmm. if I think Hazleton's taking over this program or building a new program, they are going to be able to get some initial referral volume just off of their name. Yeah. Whereas most providers have not been able to build that reputation, but they've- I think they've looked at it as the name being widespread versus the name having a, a certain cachet related to the type of care that's provided or the quality of care provider or something around it. I think that's what needs to happen. because so if you look like Mayo Clinic, right? Mayo Clinic is probably another good example of, you know, my, my dad, unfortunately, you know, had cancer um, and we went through all that and he, he lives in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We didn't have a Mayo Clinic near us, but we did in Minneapolis and so to us, that was a big deal. It's like, well, it's probably worth the five hour drive to go to Minneapolis because it's the Mayo Clinic, right? And they're, they're really good at what they do. And so I don't think anyone's gotten that across an SUD where it's the, the referral partner or the consumer saying, Hey, this person is so good at what they do, wherever they open up, we would want to send someone there. And I think that's, what's probably missing. And I don't know how easy it is to build an SUD versus something like cancer that is, more well known currently
1: well I think you have to remember and as much as we try to get rid of the stigma there's still a stigma there about treatment on and um so it's not as frequently spoken about where we all are in that fight for cancer right
0: yeah right now it's very true right because you're not going to say oh you know, my son just went through treatment and he had the best experience at Hazleton. Uh, That's not probably going to come up in conversation. Whereas if the Mayo Clinic saved your son's life, you would be shouting it from the rooftops probably. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of the, that's just one of the things against success in that area.
0: So, all right. Getting back to the marketing specifically in your experience at uh, both general healthcare, as well as SUD, you know, what were the, best campaigns you ran, or what were the best acquisition strategies that worked for you and your roles?
1: Um, so I really do think that, um, I still don't actually even have the license plate in front of my car, but when, when we first started at Promises, my favorite campaign there was the um, I Promise. In other words, that idea that we wanted to come out, and we did this across the board in marketing, but we wanted to say that we're willing to keep our commitment. And our level of care. And I think if you can stand behind that and bring that up, then it's even more successful. But you have to tell people you're willing to do that. You know, I think no matter what the what your focus is that you want people to think of you as, I think that idea of that we are willing to stand behind it and we're gonna post it, it's kind of like a hospital putting their joint commission surveys on, you know, every billboard near the hospital, right? And, and with the I, the I Promise campaign, we, we worked it for over a year. And the key to that one was about getting people from the facilities that provided care talking their, what they promised to do and what the facilities promised to do and what we promised to do to our cities and things like that. I think that was one of the most fun campaigns, but it was also one of the most honest campaigns and in marketing. You know, you, you you always try to be honest, but you also have a line you have to walk around information that you share. And so um, I have this, my staff brought me this license plate that's on the front of my car that says I prom- hashtag I promise. Um, because for a year we lived with that idea and that made it a fun campaign
0: what about channels specifically so like i know for example you ended up cutting down a lot of the google ad spend over time so any mm-hmm. recommendations on channel strategies
1: yeah yeah so the only reason i could put down the google spend and um i wouldn't have done it as much maybe as i as i did but just you know you're in a different state with each organization but is because we did uh cross-channel marketing and so whatever, whatever was happening in any layer of marketing, they all had to feed in together. And that takes a little bit of um, strong oversight to be able to manage cross-channel. But the only way you can take a dip in one area is that you have to increase another area. You have to balance that out all the time. I would never recommend that anyone just goes in and cuts their Google budget. i I would never recommend that i would only recommend that if you if you need to because your company's in a certain way dip your google budget then what you're going to need to on the other hand is increase a balance somewhere else you're gonna have to change that marketing lever so that it all comes together because just just like we talked about earlier just getting rid of one thing or only focusing on one area of marketing is not successful this is a is to it takes up to 15 times before people remember your name you know it, it takes that um marketing campaigns take multiple touch points in order for it to work and um so you have to consider that i guess that's to me i, I look at it as a completely multiple channel marketing approach
0: I think part of the value there is a certain commitment to a spend as well. Like sometimes there's, there's yes. this idea that if we can just minimize the spend, that's that's the best thing that could possibly happen. But I actually look at it differently now. And this is something I've learned from experience as well. I think both personally with Circle Social as well as clients that we work with is just because census is good doesn't mean you should cut your spend. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> because it hurts. Amen. It hurts really bad. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when I was first growing Circle Social, I actually used to do six months on, six months off with our spend. And I did that intentionally because you're, you're growing, right? There's only a certain volume of new yeah. clients that we could take on and maintain a level of quality. I had to stop and build systems and build up talent and all that kind of stuff. And so I did intentionally stop it, but it was always a pain getting it going again and getting the, the inquiry volume back up for ourselves. And we've also seen that with clients. We've had clients that said to us, hey, look, census is great. Kill the spend or bring it down. And then suddenly three months Mm -hmm. later, now we're worried because census is low. And really you should just say, hey, look, we're going to take whatever it is, 4%, 7%, 10%, depending on your goals. This is our marketing spend as a percent of revenue. And we are just going to commit that. And it will help you be more stable in your census and help you be more successful rather than the peaks and valleys. Yeah. You save a little bit of money for three months, but it ends up biting you pretty hard uh, three months later.
1: I think that's the best strategy. I mean, I just always spent exactly the same every month. On google spin it's almost one of the more predictable ones right it is and right. uh yep. w- once you get to that right amount you just that's your spend and you shouldn't you know you shouldn't hold back because you've got lots of patience because you're not going to have lots of patience
0: <laughs> right that's exactly right if you got if you've got extra volume refer out <laughs> no one's gonna be yeah, mad at you for and referring out. <laughs> make
1: you have, and that will give you patience back later that's right you know Yep. so
0: yeah, that's totally. why I say. I think yeah.
1: that's a perfect answer, Nick.
0: Right. You know, and, and you'll see, uh, everyone's seen it. If you spend so much on Google, your CPL starts to climb. There is a law of diminishing returns that happens with it. So when you hit that, then yeah, instead of just cutting the additional budget that you've got put into something else, because it will help you in a different channel where people haven't seen you yet. I agree. What about Medicaid? Because you had two facilities that were Medicaid. How was that different mm-hmm. to run versus the network?
1: So marketing in Medicaid is completely different, especially if it's a pure Medicaid facility. It is all about the reputation in the community and all about the connections in the community. And it is about referrals. I mean, that's a huge part. But also just the relationship. um, Quick intake is number one with the Medicaid facility. If you can take a patient right away and they've been sitting in the hospital or, you know, aid, they run it, they walk right into your front door. You need to be able to manage that front door experience on a way that we don't have to manage that as much when we're planning someone um, to come to a different type of facility, uh, private pay or, you know, an insurance base, because we can control the time they come in. And with the Medicaid, you lose a lot of that control. And so marketing is really about making sure that um, you're sharing the information about the front door process or how patients can get into the facility and following back up with those community sites um it is a lot more of kind of old fashioned business development marketing maybe more community marketing um and connection uh a lot less about the internet yeah and oh i and i don't want to miss this cuz this is part of marketing 100% in my mind is your alumni engagement in a medicaid facility is tremendously important because a lot of medicaid facilities have a lot of repeat customers especially where they're depending on where they're located
0: that's a really good all those are great points you're right a lot of it's community referrals and it becomes more about speed in a lot of senses because unfortunately the reality is that most potential referral partners have more Medicaid than they can handle. And they're, they're trying to worry about right. throughput. They're saying, how fast can I get these people out and placed somewhere? Because I don't want them in my ER or I don't want them hanging around my lobby or whatever the situation is. And so the more you can help from a speed standpoint. I like that point on the alumni, though, too. I don't think people really focus on alumni for Medicaid a lot of the time. But you're right, especially in, I think I've mentioned this before on other interviews, we do have psych hospitals in particular, but MET clinics as well where enough competition has come into the marketplace that they can't actually fill their Medicaid facility with just reliance on taking Medicaid. They actually are competing with other facilities because there's too many facilities providing the same services. And so you do have to focus on alumni or patient experience outside of just the referral partner relationship that you have so if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to i mean are you still in the space are you still doing some work i know you said you're retired but are are you still helping out or doing any consulting
1: I help out people when they call me. I don't. I don't do any paid consulting right now. Not that I'm against the idea, um, but you know, I still have a lot of uh, connections and friends, and I am always willing to just kind of talk and, and be a really good uh, feedback. The way to get a hold of me is um, off of LinkedIn, and uh, I always I always stay active on LinkedIn. That's how I get to reach articles that you put other people, I, that's how you learn and keep growing. And lately there's been a lot of really good articles about SUD. Uh, should we be like, we used to be Is the patient care good now that it's insurance. And there are a lot of great topics out there right now.
0: There are, there's been a whole, we don't have time for it here, but there's been a whole kind of um, slew of, of mental health, telehealth discussions happening. <laughs> Some of them are pretty interesting lately. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, Kathy. It was great having you back on. Uh, I really wish you the best in retirement, and I will see you soon in San Antonio once I get there for the TAP conference. But with that, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you guys next time.